This episode is sponsored by Masterclass. I've got Scientology on the brain at the moment with the second episode about the cult on the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast in just three weeks. A fortnight ago, it was John Atak, and today I'm delighted to welcome onto the show former Scientologist Chris Shelton, one of the most famous and respected voices in the field. Chris was born into Scientology and worked his way up to the so-called Sea Org. He became a course leader for the churches across the Western United States after years of leafleting and recruiting at high school age. He helped to bring people into Scientology through their famous personality tests, something he now regrets. After becoming disenfranchised with the religion, he left and Scientology did their thing of posting a video to discredit him, in which his wife, ex-wife, badmouthed him for the Scientology cameras. Not that it has really affected Chris, who today has a huge YouTube channel and following, and another one, another channel that is, with shorter clips, for which links can be found in the show notes. Also there, you'll find a link to Chris's book, Scientology A to Zenu, an insider's guide to what Scientology is all about, which I'm sure you'll find fascinating and enlightening, so do go and get it. If you're new to the podcast, please do subscribe and tell everyone you can about the podcast. At the risk of sounding like a cult myself, I am recruiting new listeners. I can promise you, though, that you won't go through what Chris and his fellow Scientologists had to once recruited to L. Ron Hubbard's cult of Scientology. Chris sheds light in this episode on the shocking treatment of its members. We talk about founder L. Ron Hubbard, current head of Scientology David Miscavige, who was best man at Tom Cruise's wedding and who Chris describes as a sociopath. And of course, we get to the truth about Tom Cruise and John Travolta's involvement in Scientology. Chris also does a great job answering the bonus questions. Sign up to hear them on patreon.com slash andrewgold, the Patreon app, of course, as well. Apple subscriptions, you can get it and on a YouTube membership you can join there. So there's all these different places that you can find those bonus questions and the ones from every other week as well. But for now, here's Chris. Your YouTube channel is doing fantastically, nearly 40,000 subscribers. So congratulations on the on the growing success of that. How's it going? Thank you. Yeah, it's it's just steady growth. I just kind of keep pumping out content and hope people watch it. How did it grow? Did it sort of, you say steady. So was it like by the end of the first or second year, was it already getting very popular or did it take longer than that? No, it took longer. It's a marathon, not a sprint. That's definitely how YouTube growth goes. It's It's just... I mean, I've been doing this for since 2014 now, I guess, uh, in terms of uh, putting content out. So, um, you know, now I'm at a point where I have two channels and um, one of them is just clips and the other one is the main channel where the content comes from. And, um, you know, I get peaks, I get spikes, I get I get help like when I show up on, you know, international big shows and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Like when I was on Leah's show, that that definitely helped. Um, but otherwise I just kind of keep pumping out the content and sharing it and hope people share and like the stuff and keep growing my channel. <laughs> people listening today will have heard John Atak talk a little bit and he talked very sort of cerebrally and a lot about, uh, the history and stuff like that. Um, and I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about the experience of actually being in Scientology. Um, as mm-hmm. you know, what, how did you get, what's your personal story? How did you get involved in Scientology? Was it your family or, or how was it? Yeah, I was actually raised in Scientology, so I was not a first, you know, there's a big difference between what we call first generation members and second generation members, such as myself, people who were raised in it. And it does, second generation or multi-generationals is, a, you know, they're still working out the language of, of how they want to talk about this in the fields of psychology and sociology, but generally we talk about it as second generation members, and that's me, and that means that I was never asked to be part of Scientology. I just was in it. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, my parents got involved when I was about three, four years old. And I, I don't have any memories of anything of life before Scientology. So grew up with it, went to public school. You know, my parents were, were semi hardcore, you could say they worked for, for Scientology actually in the seventies. This is back in the day, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 51. So this is a while ago. And um, so I grew up with it in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
out of high school is when I really started getting into it. My father suggested I start taking some classes and, and I started doing classwork while I was still in high school. And okay. so two years in, um, you know, I graduate high school and then the church really started working me over because they wanted me to work there. And um, my parents had worked for the church in the 70s and they'd had their own experiences with that which were kind of negative. They didn't have a great experience working for the church, but they were still believers and still acting, practicing Scientologists at that time. So um, so they encouraged me to do classwork and stuff, and I did. And I got, I went all in. I thought it was great. I thought it was wonderful. And it was, I believed all the, all the you know, indoctrination. Mm. And, um, and I really d- didn't have any, I mean, you know, I'm 15, 16, 17 years old. No real world experience, no critical thinking, no no alternative views ever expressed to me because my parents were and all my family and friends were all, of course, you know, fully fully behind this. So, um, so I went. I, I joined staff. I started working for the church right out of high school, mm-hmm. and I um, I did that for eight years. Was your school? Was it like you know this guy's Jewish, this guy's Christian, and I'm a Scientologist? Uh, no, I should be. I should be clear. I'm talking about family friends now. My mm-hmm. my friends in public school were not Scientologists. I I met the family, all the people that my parents associated with, mm-hmm. the, the people who would come over for parties, the people whose houses we would go over to. They were all Scientologists. Okay, and at school, what did people think when you said to them, "I'm a Scientologist"? My family is Scientologists. Was that normal? No, 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 not at all. But nobody was also. I was in a. I, at this point, I was in a small town. I was in Santa Maria, California. So it was kind of a farming community. We'd moved up there from Los Angeles uh, for my high school, and um, so the people around me had the manners and good sense to not insult me to my face. But nobody. <laughs> really understood this is 1985 i mean this is pre-internet nobody really knew anything about scientology so i wasn't getting a lot of crap about it i wasn't really getting much of anything about it except some snide remarks every now and again about dianetics okay i mean as far as i can tell from what i know about scientology it's not that far away for i mean it's very different the stories but it's not as any more outrageous than many other religions is it in terms of what you're supposed to believe uh, I guess it depends on your definition of outrageous. If you believe that, you know, imbibing and and eating the body of Christ is a literal act, you know, through the whole Catholic transfiguration or transformation, whatever that word is, um, oh, transubstantiation, that's the word. Oh, yeah. If you, if you think that's a thing, then you might not think Xenu is that outrageous, right? But, um, you know, Scientology's belief set is not the is not the thing that's alarming about it. It's it's what they do that makes them a destructive cult, as 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 we use the term. And that's a different thing from say what you know the Catholics or the Christians or you know the Jews or the you know the Islamists are 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 doing in a in a broad sense, right? So. You're a teenager, you're working for Scientology, um, and so what are you doing exactly? What does working for them mean? Oh, well, I ran classwork. I ran classes. I was trained as a course room supervisor, and that's kind of equivalent. You might think about it as a teaching position or a teacher role um, in that I was overseeing you know, people doing classwork, but Scientology classes are not a teacher with a bunch of students and the teacher lectures to them. The, the way classes are done is each, it's an individual study where every person is doing their own classwork and the, the supervisor is there to sort of oversee, answer questions, direct them to resources and make sure that they get the material and that they understand it and are successful graduates of the classes so that they can actually use what they've studied. So. You could be supervising a class of 10 people, and all 10 of them could be doing different classes, different courses. Um, But the methodology that Scientology uses to supervise them is the same, and that's what I was trained in. And Mm -hmm. I did that for for a number of years until I sort of got promoted to being the the sort of administrator or executive over all of the... Uh, services or delivery that we were providing. Scientology is 
um, a business. It's, it operates on a business model where it sells materials and services to people. It's not about worship and coming in and, and kumbaya. It's about coming in and paying for classes and counseling or auditing. So uh, if you're not paying, you're not doing Scientology. So were you paying? No, I was a staff member. And as a staff member, I, initially I was. When I was first doing services as a public person, when I was in high school, I was paying for classes. But then as a staff member, you sign up and you basically are volunteering at the church to work for them. But you get your classwork and your auditing for free. Okay, okay. And what is auditing? Well, auditing is the process of uh, therapy that Scientology offers, which is sort of one-on-one -on -one for the most part. Almost all brands of it are... There, there's various flavors or shades of this, but auditing is an attempt to basically reach back into your past and relieve or unburden a person of the accumulated stresses and traumas and... and uh, bad things that have happened to them, which L. Ron Hubbard insists are the reasons why people act in a bad or irrational or, you know, weird way now is because of crap that's happened to them in the past. And this past goes back millions and millions and millions of years because Scientology believes in past lives and the concept that you are an immortal spiritual being known as a Thetan. That's the term for it. They don't use soul or spirit or ghost. They use the word Thetan. And, um, and as a Thetan, you have had lots and lots and lots and lots of adventures and misadventures through time and space, pre-Earth. I mean, you've been around for millions and millions and millions of years. And your experience here now in this life that you're having on Earth is just one of billions of lives that you have led. And you cannot remember them. That is by design. And it is through the course of the auditing that you are made to remember these past lives and relieve the stress and trauma of those past experiences. And before I go along any further with this, I should definitely go out of my way to remember to say this is all a scam. There is nothing true about Scientology, and L. Ron Hubbard did not find uh, the key to unlocking our, you know, spiritual travails. This is all a con, and it is a money-making scam. So everything I describe about Scientology here, I'm really talking about the window dressing of it. And I want to be clear about that, because uh, people can get confused and, you know, kind of interested in what I'm talking about if they, if they start taking it seriously. You know, and and they shouldn't. Scientology is not something to be to be taken seriously. Again, yeah, it does sound you know no no less ridiculous than a lot of the religions that millions of people believe in across the world. It's just a little less. Um, it's not something they've heard as often, so maybe it, that's why it sounds so ridiculous. People might even be laughing, thinking, "Oh, what these, these sort of alien spirits going into souls and uh, all that stuff." But if you look at most religions, a lot of them have that kind of thing. It's just we we've heard those stories since. We were kids, so what does what does what does two and a half decades in the church? What does it what does it look like? Are you staying at a you're just in a flat with a normal job, an apartment with a normal job, or are you like I'm imagining you're on a boat all the time, or you're or you're in that big church place with the that looks like a Hollywood place, it's bluey white walls. Do you know what, you know what I mean? Right. Yes, that's where I lived. Um, oh. I should I should be I should also say since we didn't we didn't get into this that I in addition to the staff time that I spent eight years working for the for the church as a staff member when I was twenty five years old I joined the C organization and I did another seventeen years of that so you're right it was two and a half decades of working for the church but I wanted to fill that little gap in there because the C org is kind of like going to the Vatican and working there. It's like full time. You're flat out. You're you're just dedicated to working for the church, right? That's all you're doing. But it's not like going to the Vatican in terms of getting to dress up in in mitres and robes and weird outfits and stuff. 
What you do at the Sea Org is it's a paramilitary outfit. So you have ranks and ratings and uniforms and you're, it's sort of acting, you know, we call, we all acted like we were in the military, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, how high, sir, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, even in like downtime, uh, like you're with a friend, just you're in this building and you're just like, oh, hey, there's no like, oh, hey, mate, how's it going? Or would it always be just like, hello? You, I'm thinking of like Jehovah's Witnesses. I think they will, they all call each other brother something and father something, you know? No, it's not like that. Okay, so you were casual, a bit more casual just with a friend in the organization. Well, yeah, it's, yes, it is. Um, But, but let's be clear. Um, The C organization is a 24-7 outfit. So, you know, yeah, there's moments of casualness and time off and chill days. and, And, you know, when you're not on post then you are like, yeah, sure. Hey, mate. Right. But that's after 11 o'clock at night. I mean, you, you, the Sea Org is, an, you know, eight in the morning until 11, 12, one, two, three in the morning kind of operation. And it's seven days a week. So there's no days off. There's no pay. There's no vacations. There's no seeing your family whenever you want. There's no going down to the pub and getting a brew. None of that happens in the Sea Org. The Sea Org is a contained bubble world existence where you live on a Sea Org base. And those blue buildings you referred to is an example of that. The the blue building with the big Scientology sign across the top of it, that's where I lived. For 17 years, I lived in that building. Can you go out? Well, we would go out. I would cross the street to go to work. Or I would go, you know, I'd, I'd walk up the street to go to one of the other organizational buildings and do some work over there. My whole life was within a one block radius for basically most of that time. And three of those years, I didn't even see the light of day very often because I spent it almost exclusively in a basement. Jesus. So it's, it's a very sheltered, secluded, bubble world life. And I want to get that across first because it's important that that the context of that be understood. So within that world, yeah, at 11 o'clock at night on a, on a Tuesday, you get off work, you know, and if you're not too exhausted to say hi, you go down the hall and say, hey, mate, right? And you go have a conversation with a friend. But most of the time, you're so damn tired, you just want to go to bed, you know? And maybe this night, you'll be able to get six hours of sleep as opposed to the three hours of sleep you were getting for the last three nights. You see what I mean? So it's a very intense, oh God. dedicated, uh, fanatical kind of existence. I mean, the Sea Org are really the fanatics of Scientology. And, and that was me. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not you know, trying to raise myself on a pedestal or anything with this. I, I was all in. I was completely brainwashed by this stuff. And I thought like everybody else in the Sea Org, that I needed to to martyr myself this way, that I needed to be doing this level of intense, crazy work because that was the only way we were going to save the world. And that's what we thought we were doing. We actually really believed we're saving the world. And that's that's really the environment of the Sea Org. Were you very high up? I was middle management. So um, I didn't get into, say, David Miscavige's inner circle, the the leader of Scientology. I didn't get that high up. Um, But I did get to a position where I was managing all of the church services and delivery that were going on across the western United States. So anything west of the Mississippi, I was overseeing the delivery of Dianetics and Scientology services in every one of the organizations west of the Mississippi. for, And I did that for about eight or nine years. This must have had a, a, a horrible effect on your mental health. I mean, do you feel it even now? Not now, but I've been doing active recovery work for, well, since 2014, right? So for the last seven, eight years, I've been working very hard on recovering from the experience of Scientology. And as a second generation member, that presents all kinds of challenges because I don't have a pre-cult life to, to look back on and go, oh, well, I was okay here and then I got in Scientology and I went whack for a while and now I'm going to get back to normal. There never was a normal for me, right? So, so that's, that presents all kinds of fun barriers and problems. But 
I can say with with some degree of surety at this point that I have done a, a great deal of work to overcome the belief set and the way of thinking and a lot of the fanatical stuff that goes on there. Um, I have worked through that and kind of and kind of processed that stuff. But um, but if but it like I said, it takes work to do that. It's not something that just happens over time. You know, you got to you got to really dedicate yourself to it. Yeah, I'm so sorry that you had to go through all of that. It must it must be very difficult and confusing. And I imagine that if you're having a bad day, even if you can't know if that's because of what happened in Scientology or, or just you would be having a bad day anyway because people have bad days. It must be very, very confusing. It has been. There have been. Um, it's been very, very interesting to process all of this. We, I've compared it to... Um, and, and many people have used this analogy of stripping away onion layers. You know, there's layers to this and, and, and it's built up in layers. And so it makes sense that it would deconstruct in layers too. You, you know, you get the surface level off stuff first, you know, oh yeah, the, the L. Ron Hubbard is a liar. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. L. Ron Hubbard's a liar. Like you figure that's out right away, but you know, it took years for me to get to a point where I I would stop oversharing with everybody, you know, because when you're in a cult environment like Scientology, and especially when you when you're at a level like the Sea Org, where everybody is you know is just so fanatical about it, it's a very snitchy confession culture. So everybody's telling on everybody else all the time, right? You have these authoritarian sort of overtones to it. And it takes years. It took years for me to get out of that habit, that 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 way of of I would meet people and within 5 minutes I was telling them very d- personal deep things about myself because I didn't know how to relate to people otherwise. And it took, you know, it took acclimation and like, oh, yeah, kind of re-socialization and like, oh, yeah, people don't talk to each other like this, do they? You know, and they they don't yell at each other within two minutes of meeting each other either, do they? Oh, maybe I should try to rethink that, you know? Like, it's a very intense environment. And so I had to pull back on a lot of that intensity and learn to chill out and and realize that the world is not going over a cliff tomorrow and... And it's okay, and I can actually enjoy some of life without being, you know, feeling so anxious all the time about how I'm not doing enough or I'm not doing my part. And, th- and that kind of guilt induction and shame, and, you know, and blame and all that, that's, that's just part and parcel of a cult experience. And that's, and that's what I, you know, was, was habituated to. So, so recovery from that was not just getting rid of Scientology beliefs. I think that's the point I'm trying to make here is it's not just about rejecting Hubbard. It's about unlearning so many bad habits and um, and just weird ways of going about living life, you know, and uh, and that's been the, 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 the journey for me. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting what you say about um, that intense way of being, because I think from the majority of people like me who don't know very much about Scientology, the first image that comes to mind is probably Tom Cruise uh, before L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige, uh, who, yeah. who's, you know, and then and, and John Travolta. And mm-hmm. they are both very intense people. They're probably the two most intense 
celebrities I can even think of. Do you think that's related to their experience in Scientology? Absolutely, it is. Yes, very definitely. Especially Cruz. Um, Travolta is actually a pretty nice guy. I mean, in person, I've met him. I've interacted with him. He's, he's you know, he's a nice guy. He's very super sincere, you know, and he's very dedicated. Um, I really don't have a lot of bad things to say about John Travolta, except for the fact that, of course, he is so deluded like I was. Um, he's all in on this belief system, and it's a very destructive belief set. It contributed to the death of his own son. I mean, it's pretty sad. What happened there? With his, son. his son was born with um, a, a disease of some kind. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right now. But um, Scientology is not real big on doctors. And it's not, they don't eschew medicine. They will go get medical help. And they do believe in, you know, medicine and, and, and vaccines and stuff like that. At least some of them do. But, um, but Hubbard was always about solving it with Scientology. And so he insisted that his auditing techniques could be used in order to cure physical ailments. Now, he, he backtracked on that when he got in legal trouble for it, but he still kept making faith-based claims as a church. This is one of the reasons Scientology became a church, by the way, was so they could get away with making faith-based medical claims. And... Um, and Hubbard wanted that. He wanted to make those claims. And so Scientologists are, are made to believe that Scientology auditing can create physical change uh, in the medical arena and that you can cure psychosomatic illnesses. And Hubbard makes the outrageous claim that 70 to 75 percent of all illnesses are psychosomatic in origin, meaning you are making it up in your head. And that is an, a, a grossly irresponsible and outrageous claim, but Scientologists believe it. So they tend to not go for the doctor visit or go get medical help. They'll go down to their church first. And uh, in the case of um, John Travolta's son, his name was Jet, and uh, named after an L. Ron Hubbard character in a book, by the way, oh, wow. uh, he wow. died because he did not get the sufficient amount of care, at least as far as we can tell. I mean, it might have been that he was going to die anyway, but um, it was tragic and it was horrible. But it's very hard to separate Scientology from that scenario when you know how Scientology feels about medicine and how much help this, guy, you know, this kid needed. So I'm not in any way trying to imply that John Travolta is complicit I'm trying to say that he's misguided and that, you know, and that as a result of that, um, you know, it's very possible that his son uh, died as a result of that. So so that's mm. pretty bad. Right. But as far Sad. as um, Cruz goes, Cruz is actually, if you can believe it, much more fanatical than than Travolta. And he's also extremely, extremely narcissistic. So it's it's really all about him. And. Um, the sort of example that I use to sort of demonstrate where Tom Cruise's head is at is, and I don't think John Travolta would do this, but Tom Cruise did. And what he did was um, his niece kissed a boy in his house without Tom Cruise's permission, right? She was being a teenage girl and she kissed this boy and it was this moment of incautiousness because Cruise said, don't do that. And she did. And he... As a result of that, the consequence was she was kicked out of the family Wow! for two years. She had to go live with family friends, not family, friends of the family, because nobody in the family would let her stay with them. Are they all in Scientology? Yeah, they were all Scientologists. And she got kicked out of the family to go live with the Scientologists who were friends of the family for two years while she made up the damage that she had done to Tom Cruise. Wow. Over those two years, after which she had to beg in writing to him with a very long essay breaking down all of the penitent, you oh. know, uh, sort of work she had done to make up the damage for having violated the rules and gone so out ethics and been so immoral. And how dare she break the rules like that? And basically, like I said, had to beg Tom Cruise to be allowed back into the family so she could go back to seeing her own parents. That's Tom Cruise. 
They say never meet your heroes, don't they? I mean, yeah. it's it's funny. I was watching A Few Good Men the other day, which was probably one of his breakout movies. And what's yep. strange about that is all those movies from that time, he's sort of playing himself. And I know it was a different time, so things were different. But he's a bit of a dick. Um, he's horrible. Watching that, it's it's not dated well. The movie's fantastic. The, it's one of the best movies ever. It's a classic. He's horrible. The whole way through, sexist, chauvinistic, uh, selfish... And he is like that in most films. And even if you allow for the different generation and time and everything, he was still extremely selfish. And that was supposed to be like a, a good thing. I'll go one further for you and tell you and your viewers the best, the most self-reflective uh, role that Tom Cruise played of himself. Magnolia. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to show off. I interrupted you when you were saying I wanted to show off so much that I knew it. No, you're good. You nailed it. That's exactly right. That is Tom Cruise. And, and, And I think that Paul Thomas Anderson saw something there. Now, I could be wrong. PTA could just be, you know, just another director. But his work on The Master tells me that he is a very insightful guy, Paul Thomas Anderson I'm talking about. And he's the one who wrote and directed The Master, which is pure Scientology from beginning to end. And he can make as many disclaimers as he wants. <laughs> but that movie is 100% Scientology. And he nailed it. He wow. nailed it. And I think he nailed it after watching Tom Cruise and then going and doing some research. John Atak said he was actually consulted on that movie, The Master. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. He also said, when I asked, I said, what's going through Tom Cruise's head? And John said, not very much. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. He doesn't think a lot. He's, a, he's one of these, you know, he's one of these powerhouses who has this like bottomless well of energy. And when he is focused or directed on a mission or a task, he just, he's the Energizer Bunny. He just goes. And he's also best friends with David Miscavige, the head of Scientology. David Miscavige was Tom Cruise's best man when he was married to Katie Holmes. So they are bosom buddies. And if you know anything about David Miscavige, and it's not hard to find out, he's a sociopath and he beats people and he enjoys it. Yeah. And Tom Cruise is on that wavelength. You know, it's not like yeah. he doesn't know what David Miscavige gets up to. He thinks it's justified. He thinks David Miscavige is right for having to abuse and beat on people because that's what they need in order to get their heads out of their asses so that they do what they're supposed to do and get their jobs done. This is how this is the attitude that Scientology, top Scientology management has about its members and Tom Cruise is 100% behind that kind of abusive treatment because he thinks that that's what's necessary to get the job done. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and which which makes me wonder about his own, well, I don't want to say he's a psychopath. Well, I'll just say it. Maybe he is. I won't diagnose Tom Cruise, but I will say that he is not a good person. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I think that's fair enough. And then if he wants to debate that, he can come on the show. He probably won't. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's just people have no idea. The the guy has such good looks and such a winning smile that everybody just falls to pieces over him. He's a monster. Mm. And, And we really need to be clear about that. Tom Cruise is a monster. Excuse the break in the show. I just wanted to talk to you about today's sponsor, Masterclass. I know a lot of you are all about self-improvement and learning, and the Masterclass website and app has classes that'll help you get better at pretty much anything. From chess and gardening to writing, music and film. They have more than 100 classes and you'll be amazed by some of the big names from Chef Gordon Ramsay and scriptwriter Aaron Sorkin, who wrote The West Wing, to tennis star Serena Williams and astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. As a journalist, I learned a lot of my interviewing techniques on the platform and just completed the Malcolm Gladwell course on it. Um, He talks about the pursuit of imperfection in writing and how he views his books as incomplete puzzles that don't need to be perfectly solved or aligned. It's better just left that way. That was a really interesting insight that I got to grips with, to be honest, in just the first few minutes. That's how enlightening some of these classes are. Um, And Masterclass is full of those kind of big names, influential people, 
fascinating classes. I really recommend you at least check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as an On The Edge with Andrew Gold listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. You just go to masterclass.com slash edge. That's masterclass.com slash edge for 15% off masterclass. It's an interesting thing, actually, because I know we talked a little bit earlier. I don't know if it will be included or not about sort of woke stuff and people talk. And, and, and a big a big facet of woke stuff is, is about privilege. And obviously, different people have different privileges based not only on race, but other things. But it is really interesting that he's so physically beautiful that, you know, men, straight men, women, everyone, you know, just can't help but look at that smile and you just sort of you get away with having a wonderful he's obviously very talented and driven as well but yep. you know an, an ugly tom cruise what would he be doing now not a lot mm-hmm. you know it's, it looks will get you way farther in this world than they should and uh mm. i i really really wish it was different but you know people are people and they're gonna they're gonna do what they're gonna do so when you left I I just watched just before talking to you one of the most extraordinary videos I've ever seen, which looked a bit like a hostage film. I, ho- I hope you don't mind me saying, but it, uh, some somebody claiming to be your ex-wife. Obviously, Scientology. When when you leave, they they put up videos about you, especially if you're quite a, a well-known known person. John Atac has a similar one about him. And what? So so could you describe that video? And, and is that actually your ex-wife? Yeah, that is actually my ex-wife. Uh, what happened was I left Scientology in the um, at the end of 2012. I finished up working for the C organization, and I and I left. I left that group, and I started. I wanted to be a public Scientologist. I didn't want to. I, I wanted to still do Scientology. I just didn't want to work for them anymore. So in 2013. I was out. I was I was uh I was able to get access to the internet which I didn't have before as a Sea Org member because they policed oh. that. Right. So I didn't have internet access up until then. Not not really. I had a little bit. I was I was sort of exceptional in that I had a little bit of access, but I wasn't going out of my way to go try to find all the bad stuff about Scientology because I was still a Scientologist and when you're a Scientologist you police that. Um, you'd self-police. Now, what happened was, though, after I got out of the Sea Org, I started reading about a little bit of this and a little bit of that. One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And before you know it, you're down the rabbit hole. And three months out of the Sea Org, I was mentally, I was out of Scientology. I saw, oh, my God, I learned the truth. I learned that Elrond Hubbard was a liar. I learned all this stuff. Um it was really bad and I was very angry and I, and I was also still wrapped up with Scientologists and, and they were my friends and, and my fiance and all these people. Yeah. And so I was very stuck. So 2013 was a really rough year for me because I was having to sort through this and figure out what I was going to do. And, um, and so I started speaking up, not, not anonymously at first on message boards and stuff. And then finally, by the end of the year, they'd figured out who I was and it had all blown up and I lost everything and I was Shit. declared a suppressive person. So in 2014, I start making videos and I'm out and I'm loud and proud. I'm Chris Shelton. I'm a former Scientologist and this was my experience or here's some breakdown of what Scientology is all about. And I started, you know, exposing the church's nonsense. It wasn't until I got on Leah's show, Scientology in the Aftermath, a couple years later, that the church started paying any attention to me at all. And in fact, it was the day after I was on her show that that video dropped. And so they'd had it already, but they didn't unleash it. Until wow. I was on Leah's show. I'd been speaking out for years, right? But they didn't, they, it wasn't until I got on a national stage. So the day after that, that I was on Leah's show, that video drops and this web page drops about me being a deadbeat dad and, you know, how, a whore, what, how I cheated on my wife and blah, blah, blah. Well, I did do those things. I did cheat on my wife. Right. And I talked all about it in my book, right? And I cheated on her with phone sex. I never had sex with anybody. I never even kissed anybody else. But phone sex. Well, that's enough to, to get you in a lot of trouble with Scientology. And I get it. And, you know, I, I, I was not faithful. And I own that. But let's talk about context. 
Well, you can do whatever you want. I right. mean, about like 50% of relationships have infidelity in them. I've made that statistic up, but I hope that doesn't mean my girlfriend has if I haven't, if it's 50%. Yeah, <laughs> no, not at all. And I'm happily married now and I'm very faithful. I, I'm, I'm, I, what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is not that my cheating was a justified or, or, or good thing to do, but when compared to, <laughs> You know, the abuses that I experienced, oh, assaulted, yeah. had bro- had a bone broken, uh, spent three years in a prison camp. I mean, I you know, I more than paid for that infidelity and continued to be a working, hardcore, you know, Sea Org member despite all of that abuse. I kept working for the church, but it wasn't until I got on Leah's show that they decided to trash me. And the deadbeat dad stuff is all just bullshit. It's all lies. It's nonsense. And so you go, well, there's a little bit of truth. There's a kernel of, of a bad thing I did surrounded by exaggerated half-truths and nonsense. And we're going to dump it all on the internet. And here's the dead fish of, you know, all this bad news about Chris Shelton. Well, the, the good news for me is that uh, people could see through those lies very, very easily because Scientology always overplays their hand. And um, all that did was help expand my channel. Hmm. Oh, well, good. I, th- I think, okay. I mean, the, the, the funny thing about the allegations were they were all things where I just thought, like, even if they're true, who cares if you've cheated right. or someone cheated? A lot of people have cheated. And a relationship with a son or whatever, like, what do we know about that? But but what I heard from, I mean, John was telling me that sometimes, I mean, some people have taken their lives from the stuff Scientology has spread about them. He talked about, I think, uh, oh, yeah. who was it? So, somebody, maybe it was a priest or something, and they spread some rumors about he was uh, molesting children and took his life. So it can be very dangerous yeah. as well. Oh, Scientology is is absolutely pitiless and ruthless about this. And mm-hmm. it's called fair gaming. Um, it's a practice they've engaged in since the late 1960s. This is old, ancient history for Scientology. It's been something they've been doing for a long time. Um, I don't mean by ancient history that they've ever stopped doing it. I mean that it's been something they've been doing for forever. And they go after their critics very, very hard. Elron Hubbard wrote this into the DNA of Scientology through the various policies and issues and things that they have. Um, Because Hubbard's dead. He died in 86, right? But all of his policies live on. And his vindictiveness lives on. And so so you have this guy who prided himself. He would brag openly in lectures that he gave that if people attacked him, if, if even literarily, as a writer, if somebody criticized one of his stories... He bragged about how he would ruin that person. He would just trash them, just merciless. He was not interested in anybody's criticism of anything he had to say or do. So Scientology doesn't have a self-corrective mechanism. It has to be the way L. Ron Hubbard says it is, and it's that way or the highway, and that's the end of the story. So so if you have been wronged, if you have been in a situation where a Scientologist victimizes you, too bad. That's your fault. And that's how the church basically deals with you. So that's when you really start finding out what this thing's really all about, is after something bad happens and you go, well, I'm looking for some recourse or some redress or some justice or some help here. You know, you, you guys took too much of my money. You didn't give me what you what you said you would. Or now I can't talk to my aunt because she's critical of Scientology. So now you're telling me I can't talk to her anymore? Yeah, you can't talk to her anymore. Well, I'm not sure I like that. Well, we don't really care what you think. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it's how you're dealt with, you know. And, and this is what a cult is all about. This is why we call them a cult. It's not the beliefs. It's what they do with them. I sort of, I mean, that episode I did with John Atak came out yesterday uh, at the time of this recording, of course. Um, and I was sort of wondering, am I going to get anybody sort of having a go at me? And then if I do you as well, I've gotten two Scientologists in, in three weeks, it will have been. 
um, <laughs> you know, but John was saying like there's safety in numbers now. Yeah, no, I wouldn't worry. The reason why is because here's what's happened is we're talking about an organization that's been around since 1953, the Church of Scientology as a as an entity, right? Mm. In that time, they have had a rise and they have had a fall. And uh, they are on a steep decline now. This is not like just, you know, some uh, opinion on my part. Um, they're really, really going down the tubes, and their their apex, their their you know their peak, was actually back in the 1970s, and they sort of tanked themselves back in the 1980s. Then Hubbard died, and Miscavige took over, and it's just been a downhill slope ever since. They had a a very very tiny resurgence in 1993 when they got their tax exemption back in the United States. Otherwise, it's just been tank, tank, tank. And specifically, since the 2000s, since about the year 2004, 5, 6, I think it was 2007, sorry, Anonymous went after them. And there were huge worldwide protests against Scientology. And ever since then, that's really when they were exposed as not just a sort of weird, you know, celebrity cult that Cruz was involved in, but actually something dangerous, something really toxic, something that was actually going to going to hurt you if you got involved with it. And and ever since then Going Clear comes out, Leah comes out with Scientology in the Aftermath, people like me, Tony Ortega, John Atax, so many of us are speaking up. I'm just one of a, a chorus of voices. And all of us together have made really significant change. We really have. And so now you have a group that is pulled its flippers in, has sort of defanged. They can't publicly attack people because we just put it on the Internet. You know, back in the 90s, back in the 80s, when they were really getting away with this stuff, the stuff you talk about where, you know, that John mentions where they're ruining people's lives, suicides, you know, deaths. I mean, really nasty stuff is in Scientology's history. They got away with that stuff because nobody was around to expose them and the Internet didn't exist yet. And the Internet has been Scientology's Vietnam. They've never been able to recover from the Internet because L. Ron Hubbard died before the Internet was around. He didn't even have a clue that, that the Internet was going to be a thing. So he never wrote any policies or any and never had any bright ideas about how to deal with people on the Internet. And so so their whole tactic has been the tactic of a bully where they're going to bully you into silence. They're going to insult you. They're going to sue you. They're going to go through your trash. They're going to follow you around. They're going to intimidate you. They got away with that for decades. But now we can just pull up our cameras and start filming them when they're doing it, right? And when they hire their stupid private attorney, investigators or attorneys or whatever, because they they use cutouts and middlemen and stuff now for plausible deniability. But you know where it's coming from. You know, it's, it's not any big mystery who's attacking you when Scientology is coming after you. So now with that kind of exposure... They've retreated to the shadows, and they really—they're still capable of doing nasty stuff. Don't get me wrong, but but it's not like it used to be, and that's been because of all the public exposure and the support that we've received from people. So we need to continue that. I'm not saying we're done, not by any stretch, but we need to continue that, and that's why you are not going to be receiving any fair gaming coming your way. Because if you had done this show in the 1980s, they would go after you. And they would destroy your professional and maybe personal life just because you had done this show. Shit. Yeah, but they don't do that now because they don't have the resources or the ability to hit every single person who comes after them because there's too many of us now and there's too few of them. And frankly, with cases like Danny Masterson in the in the court system now, the the church's liability, the legal exposure there is huge. So they are concerned about much bigger problems than you know your podcast. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there was that Louis Theroux documentary as well. I don't know if did you see yeah, that? Yeah, Scientology yeah. movie. Yes. Yeah, they they sort of followed it. Came to his house a bit. Yeah, it wasn't his best film, was it? He didn't really get much access. No, I did a review of it, which he saw, by the way, too. I I, I tweeted it at him, and he commented on it. I was a little critical. I I, I was glad he did it. I wasn't. I you know I I I, re- I did recommend that people see the movie, but it does have some some pretty big. Um, what did he problems. say to your review? I forgot. It was something on Twitter. It was just, it was sort of a thank you for your, I mean, it was, it was not that dismissive. It just, it wasn't a very detailed sort of thing. I just happened to know he saw it. So I was like, okay, good. He saw it. I think he might've known it wasn't his best one. And when you're making a documentary, a lot of it is not about you, the documentary maker, but the people you're able to get access to. And unfortunately they just, they just couldn't there with Scientology. Um, They knew they'd be made fun of, I suppose. Well, they had gotten wise a little bit, right? In that they, Louis thought he would play their game and he would get stalked and harassed, and they sort of flipped the script on him and refused to do that. Yeah. So yeah. then he had to sort of figure out what to do and scramble to come up with something else, rather than do what he was originally going to do, and it and it kind of showed, and that was what I think where the quality suffered. Um, but whatever, you know. Like I said, I did a whole video critique of that I, like and also like i said though i do recommend people see the movie i'd rather than they see it than they not see it yeah yeah it was still very interesting as was going clear and you know i still want i'm just wondering about time how are you for time are you okay next? Oh, fine. okay then that's that is good um yeah tell me but just just you know what i had just thought about and i only thought about it and it's not really fair to say this, I suppose, but when you were talking about John Travolta and all of that, can people be... There's a lot of rumours around John Travolta and his sexuality. Can people be gay in Scientology, trans, whatever? Is it, is it very conservative? What are the rules and things like that? Um, okay, so yes, you can be gay in Scientology, but you're not going to get very far. There's um, Hubbard. Hubbard's policies and, and writings on this are reflective of the attitudes of, you know, his growing up in the American Midwest in the early 1900s and the conservative values of America as a whole in 1950 and 51 when he wrote about how any kind of sexually deviant behavior, which is how they used to call that, call any kind of LGBTQ activity, is... um, is demented, aberrated. In other words, you know, you got a mental illness. There's something wrong with you if you are if you are feeling that way. And certainly that applies to the entire spectrum of trans activity, right? If you are if you are in any way feeling uh, different than your you know body's gender, then clearly you're the problem, and you need auditing. And uh, Hubbard says that this has to do with uh, past lives and evil intentions that you have as a spirit toward you know bodies and toward man or toward women and that that's the source of your sexual confusions and that kind of thing or sexual you know dysphoria all of that comes from you know past crap and if you audit somebody you can basically audit the gay away rather than pray the gay away we will audit the gay away right okay and I watched people that this happened to. I watched a very flamboyantly gay uh, hairdresser in Santa Barbara go through years of auditing, trying to fix his gayness, right? And uh, what you find out when you get into Scientology is they'll accept you. You'll they, oh yeah, oh, gay people. We don't have any problem with gay people. This is their this is their frontline PR message now because because they've had so much backlash on this. But the written materials of L. Ron Hubbard are fixed they cannot be changed and they're not going to just go delete them so hubbard wrote very very clearly in 1950 1952 1953 that homosexuality is basically tantamount to a mental disease and it needs to be dealt with so eventually that's going to come out and be directed to you if you are a you know lgbtq and you try to become a scientologist so they might welcome you and take your money and do some classwork and do some beginning auditing work and get you up to a certain level, but there's going to come a point where you're not going to be able to progress anymore if you're homosexual or if you're LGBT, and not until you stop it, not until you knock it off. 
And uh, that point is getting onto the the place where that happens is at the point where they want to get you onto the confidential stuff, the OT levels, the super secret stuff. Right. Okay. Okay. They don't trust you. They can't trust you. L. Ron Hubbard tells them not to trust you because you're gay. You can't be trusted. Hmm. So uh, you're a security risk, in other words, right? And so, I mean, Hubbard even implies that your gayness can be used as blackmail material, which back in 1950 was true. Yeah. But it's not true now. (laughs) Well, if somebody's uh, sort of married to a woman. Yeah, that kind of thing. Hmm. Right? Yeah. I want to ask you then as well, like a a big thing for you is critical thinking. Uh, I was then thinking of ways that somebody could, how we could teach people to not be taken in by cults or or I suppose any kind of extreme beliefs, political beliefs and that kind of thing. John, again, I keep talking about John because I just spoke to him. Um, If I'd spoken to you first, I'd I'd be talking about you the whole time. But um, he's quite critical of critical thinking because he says, you know, people think critically on both sides of like the political spectrum for example but their beliefs will take them one way or another but you know how, where do you stand on that oh no he's absolutely right it's a rough go D- critical thinking is very akin to martial arts I-, mm. I love this as an analogy i think it works um for a number of reasons um opinions are a dime a dozen right everybody's going to have tons and tons and tons of opinions Critical thinking is a discipline of how to go about thinking in a logical, reasonable manner. The outcome of you thinking in a logical, reasonable manner is not set. Just because I've come to a certain set of conclusions thinking in a logical, reasonable manner doesn't mean you're going to come to the same set of conclusions thinking in a logical, reasonable manner. However, what you and I can both say with certainty is that if we arrive to our conclusions in a logical, reasonable manner, then we can justify those opinions. We can talk about those opinions. We can debate on those opinions with logic and reason and have a reasonable, rational conversation as a result. That's the advantage of critical thinking. It's it's you got somewhere by actually working through a logic train. You didn't just arrive there because of some, you know, silly bias or opinion or faith-based idea that you have that doesn't really, that's not grounded in reality. So critical thinking only gives you a better opportunity to have reality-based thinking. It doesn't guarantee anything. But similarly... Uh, to martial arts, right? If you're confronted with somebody who, you know, wants to beat you up, well, the first thing to do is turn around and run. Any master of any martial arts is going to tell you that your Nikes are your best weapon, <laughs> right? Every one of them tells you that, unless they're off the rails. So, uh, but, you know, but one for one for one. And I've been hearing this from martial arts masters since I was a kid. So, you know, so I fall back to this. Well, same thing with critical thinking, right? You can use critical thinking as a weapon to try to own people on social media or in debates or something. But that's not really what it's for, you know? And it's actually a bit of a corruption of its use to use logical fallacies to beat somebody with, you know, oh, that's just this, that's just that, you're just this, that's a false equivalency, that's that's an ad hoc temporum. You know, you start throwing Latin at people and stuff as though it's supposed to mean something, right? Critical thinking is about trying to make your way through the world in a sensible way. And that's what it gives you the potential to do. It doesn't guarantee anything, though. So so I see where John's coming from, but I will push critical thinking every day of the week because it allows, it, it creates an opportunity for you to be able to think in a more disciplined way. And if there's one thing that we can say about cultists or about people who get into a fanatical or extremist headspace is they don't get there by thinking in a disciplined, rational way. So that's why it's a proof against or a potential proof against extremism. It's not 100%, but you're going to get a lot fewer people going into an extremist headspace if they can remember to keep the discipline of critical thinking first and foremost in their minds. Very, very difficult. 
very difficult to do. It's not something we're organically, you know, know how to do. You have to be trained in it. Nobody's born a black belt. Nobody's born a good critical thinker. <laughs> you know, there are people who have potentials to be better critical thinkers than others, but it's a skill set you have to learn. And after you learn it, you then have to use it. And that's the discipline of it. And so that's my soapbox on that because um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a real firm, strident believer in this. But I also want to make people aware of the fact that it's, it, it takes effort and work to do it. It's not something you can just toss off. That sounds like a, a British uh, slang for something that you didn't you didn't mean, but <laughs> there's a good place to I was, end. So. I was doing double entendre there, actually, but there you go. <laughs> Does that mean the same thing in the US? It can. <laughs> Thanks again for listening and not tossing this podcast off, as Chris might put it. I had a great time chatting to him. We shared some laughs. But more importantly, or let's say equally importantly, he taught me a lot about Scientology. Namely, don't trust Tom Cruise or David Miscavige. But also, wow, some of the stuff they're getting away with in that cult, it's quite frankly scary and disgusting. Anyway... That concludes this month's dig into Scientology, along with the episode two weeks back with John Atak. I hope you find that those episodes together offer a really intriguing insight into Scientology, and I'm sure we'll be back with some other former cult members someday soon. Uh, But next week, it's forensic psychologist Kerry Danes, who, among other things, analyzes murderers and other criminals to see if they're mentally fit to stand trial. She has some incredible insights about the human mind, as well as stories that shock and surprise. One patient stabbed her with a kebab skewer. Remember to go to masterclass.com slash edge for 15% off of your Masterclass membership. In the meantime, please keep telling friends about the podcast so it can grow. Sign up for the weekly bonus interviews on patreon.com slash Gold, Apple subscriptions or YouTube memberships. Uh, I don't get your names on Apple when you sign up, but just let me know. Uh, one such subscriber last week was Jasper. So thank you so much, Jasper, for signing up. And do please keep leaving reviews. It helps to attract bigger name guests if they can see how many reviews I've had. But it's also a nice way for me to sort of pause and take stock. I get a nice email notification and it's one of those moments when I really realize and appreciate the scope of this thing and that it's going out into the world and people are really, really listening and engaging with it. Um, it's, it's, it's without going too far, it's something of an intimate moment. You know, I'm sitting there um, looking at the email and it's from, you know, sometimes it's someone's name and they tell me a bit about themselves and sometimes it's sort of anonymous. But just to think that somebody is out there listening uh, and appreciating it enough to to comment like that is a really nice feeling. This week there was a five-star review on Apple from PDK101. So that's one of the anonymous ones, of course. I don't know who PDK might be, but they're in the UK. And they wrote, awesome podcast. I'm not sure how I came across Andrew Gold's podcast, but so glad I did as they are great. The interviewees are always interesting and Andrew has a great way of talking to people. Long may they continue. Then Hillsy24 in the US wrote five stars. Interesting podcast. I've been listening to a bunch of episodes recently. I love the varied perspectives you include on the show. I have especially enjoyed your interviews with people with ASPD. That is um, just Andrew talking now. That is antisocial personality disorder or what lay people like me would call psychopathy or sociopathy. So people like Dr. James Fallon and M.E. Thomas. Uh, back to the review. Um, as it's pretty difficult... Uh, Hilsey continues to find first-hand accounts the only thing that I wish you would change is warning listeners before you go to commercial break it's very jarring and often happens in the middle of a sentence other than that I love the pod thank you for the entertainment well thank you so much Hilsey for such a beautifully written uh, and well thought out review Um, and I love those episodes with the psychopaths as well uh, the commercial break thing, I've heard this before as well, and I'm trying to fix it, and I don't know if it's happening in the latest episodes. Maybe it is in the older one. If it's still happening in the latest episodes, uh, can somebody let me know, please? Um, 
I'm not sure what to do about it. I mean, I get an option on Audio Boom, which is who hosts the podcast, um, and I can sort of find a spot. So I'm now leaving a second uh, where I know the advert is going to go. But if it's not going in there, then I don't know what else to do. It's supposed to go in the gap. The other thing is, it's louder, isn't it? The ads are louder. And I can't make my stuff louder without it getting distorted. So again, if anybody has any advice on that, why is it that I'm I'm making my stuff as loud as it can get on Premiere Pro? And if it gets any louder, it's distorted. And yet the ads are much louder. And that is hurting the ears of my listeners. So yeah, if anyone can get in touch who knows about that you know firstly let me know if it's still happening in these episodes and uh what i can do to get louder stuff of my own so it's not such a shock um last but not least is and sign at sign 59 who has left reviews before too so thank you so much for, for sticking with it and they left five stars and referred to the recent scientology episode with john atak saying what an interesting and erudite individual i have learned so much just by listening to him one of the best guests to date also i love your podcast andrew you never fail to ask what us your audience wish to know well done clappy hand emoji That is so lovely to read, so thank you so much for that and for listening and spreading the word. That's all this week, but make sure to find me and the video clips from the podcast on andrewgold underscore ok on Twitter and Instagram. Chris, by the way, Chris Shelton is on at Shelton Designer on Twitter and links to his book and YouTube channels are in the show notes. I'll see you all next week with forensic psychologist Kerry Danes. That one's going to be a cracker. (laughs) 